All right, good evening. Uh, my name is Joel, I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. I've yet to meet you, I'd love to meet you over uh, dinner. Um, heads up, normally we have uh, question and answer time after the sermon. We're not going to have that tonight, so if you've got any questions, they will not be answered. Uh, not from at the front, at least. You can come chat to me afterwards. Uh, I am hope you are enjoying the Judges series. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying uh, the stage display as well on the sides, which is getting a bit more chaotic as uh, weeks go on to, I guess, uh, demonstrate to us the Book of Judges and Israel itself, which is going through this downward spiral. And also a reminder to look on the website for the daily reading guide. So if you want to know more about the Book of Judges, there's some questions there that can be with you uh, each and every day that you can read in your devotion time. Now, my prayer uh, for this series is that we would learn from the Israelites from the Israelites in the book of Judges, in particular as we get closer to Christmas, that these lines, rescue is coming, would be tattooed into our souls. Because what my hope is, is as you've been going, coming with us on this journey and we've been going through the book of Judges and seeing how broken the Israelites are, that you have come to see that you are also just as broken. And that just like the Israelites needed a king, so you and I need a perfect king as well. And so look, cards on the table, like every week when I get up here, I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to show you how you are broken, but I'm also trying to show you how great your king is. But as we do this from God's word, your heart and your sinful flesh is going to want to resist. And so for that reason, why don't we pray and ask for God's spirit to humble us and to teach us by God's word. So please join me in prayer. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the book of Judges. A book that is, even though it's written 3,000 years ago, is still relevant and applicable to us today because it points out our need for a Savior. It points out our need to be rescued. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to your word tonight, that we may learn lessons from the Israelites, that by your Spirit you may convict us where we need to be convicted, where we need to be challenged and encouraged, that we be challenged and encouraged. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you'd be with us tonight and help us to walk out these doors with greater affection and adoration for our King Jesus and with a hunger and a desire to be more like Him. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Uh, in 2006, uh, the movie called 300 came out at the cinemas. My mates and I had been awaiting for this movie to come out for a while because we were really excited about this movie. If you don't know much about it, it's a movie which is about a famous battle between uh, 300 Greek Spartans that went against about 300,000 Persians. And it's, it was a really good movie. Like, if you like those sort of movies, it was a good movie, I've got to say. But after watching it, it was really hard not to want to become like King Leonidas. That's the guy on the right. It was really difficult not to sign up to the gym and grow a rat tail and, and, and want to go conquer people, right? Like, it's just very difficult. And matter of fact, after this movie came out, and I, I saw it at the, the movies... Uh, a few weeks later, I went along to this youth camp, and it was this big youth camp, and one of my jobs at the youth camp was to create a promo video for the man afternoon that was happening uh, that week. And so I had this brilliant idea. I was inspired by King, Leon King Leonidas and his Spartan friends, and the theme music, the, or the soundtrack music. And so what I did is I gathered 50 of the guys together, and we were uh, running, uh, no, not running, we are doing slow motion, like running up this hill with the theme music in the background, and at a certain point, we'd turn on each other and just tackle each other and just, you know, show chaos. And everything went really well, especially the slow motion running, like it's really difficult, but we killed that part. Um, but unfortunately, when it was time to tackle each other, one of my good friends, Ben, got grabbed from behind and swung like this so that his head smashed my head and knocked me out cold. So that next minute, 
I was in Sutherland Hospital, <laughs> true story, for some weird reason, could not stop singing the song, um, You Are My Sunshine. <laughs> Absolutely no idea why. And uh, my wife, who was with my girlfriend at the time, was there, and she will tell you about that and how weird I was. You, you see, whenever you watch 300, which is a movie about the Greek Spartans, 300 versing 300,000, you're, in, you're inspired to want to be like King Leonidas. And tonight, as we come to another story about an army of 300, you might be tempted to want to be like Gideon. You know, you might be tempted to want to leave here and say, yeah, I want to be like Gideon. Like, he's a hero of the faith, and he is. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. But the problem is, is actually Gideon was as broken as the people he was trying to save the Israelites. You see, in chapter 8 of Judges, which we didn't have time to read out, but I'll go through tonight, we're going to discover something new in the book of Judges. We're going to come across a time where God's people fell away from God, even when the judge was still alive. In other words, we're going to see the downfall of Gideon. You see, like I said before, I want us to learn lessons from the Israelites. And so that's what we're going to do. Like, as we're going through the book of Judges, we're going to go through the narrative, the story of chapter 7 and 8, and then we're going to learn some lessons along the way. But before we look at chapter 7 and 8, let's do a quick recap. So in other words, previously on Judges, what's happened? Well, as we know, you should know the cycle by now. Once again, the Israelites, they rebelled. And they worship Baal, the evil idol, instead of worshipping their God, who's been so generous to them, rescuing them time and time again. And so what does God do? Well, He responds with retribution. He hands them over to the Midianites. And for seven years, these Midianites, they come and they plunder and they take their fields and their crops and their foods to the point that then the Israelites cry out to the Lord. Or in other words, they repent. And how does God respond? Well, He sends a deliverer. He sends Gideon. He calls him a mighty warrior, and he doesn't seem to be that. It takes him a bit of time to get the courage up. He needs to do a few tests before he would follow God's um, commands. But eventually, he steps up to the challenge, and he blows the trumpet, and he calls the Israelites together to defeat this Midianite army, and he gets 32,000 troops together, but he's versing an army of 135,000 Midianites. And so as we approach chapter 7, the question that should be going through our brains is, how is God going to deliver Israel through Gideon and through such a weak army? Well, an army that's obviously nowhere near as big as 135,000. So with that question in mind, let's look at chapter 7 and let's read a few verses from verses 1 to 7. It will come up on the screen. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel will boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. There's so much there for us to learn, but anyway, don't have time. Verse 3. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Now, right now, we should be thinking, all right, Gideon, he has 32,000, but, but now he's only got 10,000. Like, like we, we should be thinking, what's going on here? Gideon needs more men, not less. Well, let's, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there is still too many men. Take them down to the water. And then he goes on to say, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. 
The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I'll save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, God, are you crazy? Like, did you fail mass? You know, like, like Gideon needs a bigger army, not a smaller army. And you've just reduced his army by like 99%. You know, like, and, and have you realized that, that Gideon, he's this weak farmer dude, right? Like, he is no Leonidas, you know, and the Israelites, they're no Spartans. How's this going to be possible? How's this going to work? Well, of course, God is teaching Gideon and us a lesson. Lesson number one for us. God will often weaken us to use us. God will often weaken us to use us. You see, church, it's important for us to understand that God is intentionally weakening Gideon's army. And he's doing this because he wants them to praise him rather than themselves. You see, when God wants to use us, often, often he will weaken us. As Jesus says to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And we see this time and time again in the book of Judges. God uses unexpected means, unexpected saviors. Like Gideon is a weak and timid man from the weakest clan of Israel. And yet, God works through him. And look, God does the same to us here tonight as well. He will weaken our army so that we'll learn to trust in him. And he does this because sometimes you'll never know he's all you need until he's all you have. For when we are weak, we learn that God is strong. Maybe right now God is weakening you. Maybe right now He is reducing your strength, reducing your armies. So that you can see that He is the God of power and strength. You see, church, one of the most important truths that we need to learn is that actually your strengths are more dangerous than your weaknesses. I wonder if you thought this through. I don't know if you have, but because, you know, when, when things are going well in your life, you know, maybe when you're healthy, you're killing it at uni, maybe you're doing really well in the workforce, you know, maybe your family's together, your children are listening to you, maybe when your relationships are going really well, you know, that doesn't seem to be the time that you're on your knees begging for God's help, but instead it seems to be the time you're looking in the mirror and you're smiling and you're going, you're killing this, good job. Your strengths are more dangerous to your soul than your weaknesses. For in your weaknesses, you discover God's power, His grace, and His strength. And so church, can I ask you a few questions to help you recognize your need for God? Let me ask you this. Where do you feel strong at the moment? Where do you feel chuffed about yourself? Where are you tempted to boast? And maybe God's going to humble you. Is it your intellect? Maybe your emotional intelligence? Your health, your wealth, your relationship status, your career, your style, your understanding of culture, your talents. Where, do you, where are you strong at the moment and tempted to boast? But on top of that, where is God weakening you? And what's He trying to teach you? Maybe that He is your strength. He is your security. He is your comfort. He is your joy. He is all you need. Lesson one, God will often weaken us to use us. But let's, let's keep going. Let's go back to the narrative of the story. Let's look at verses 9 to 14. It says this. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up and go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. He goes on to say, The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. 
the camels could not be counted than the sand of the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the midnight camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Don't miss the humor here, right? Don't, don't miss how when it talks about this dream, the Gideonite, Gideonite, sorry, Gideon, you know, he, he's not like a big bear. He's not a ferocious lion. He's not a spear. He's not a hurricane. Instead, he's a piece of bread. Piece of Helga's, you know, loaf of bread. That's all he is. And yet this weak piece of bread knocks down a tent. You see, Gideon, Gideon recognizes here how God can use the weakest of items to destroy the strongest. Which is why I think after hearing this dream, he, he bowed down and he worshipped. And what happened then? Well, the Israelites go back to camp and Gideon yells out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianites into your hands. And then Gideon, he divides the 300 soldiers into three companies of 100. And he gives each man a trumpet as well as a jar which has a torch inside. Pick up, there's no swords here. And then in verse 19, we're told this, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just after they changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled." Now, let me try and explain this, paint a picture for you of what's going on here, okay? Uh, back then, a torch and a trumpet basically symbolize a whole battalion, or battalion, sorry. And so when Gideon places a trumpet and a torch to each of his men, and he puts them so they're positioned above the valley where all the Midianites are camped, when, these, when they smash these jars in unison, so at the same time, it would have sounded like a thousand swords being raised, and especially in pitch dark, these trumpets being blown from around the top of the valley would have made this small army sound like a massive army. And Gideon did this during the middle watch. You see, what would have occurred during this time is that about a third of the Midianites would have been asleep. Another third would have been out on guard. And then another third would have been getting ready to go out to go on guard. And so Gideon did it at the perfect time. So that way... When people hear the smashing of the jars and they see these torches and they hear these trumpets and then all of a sudden they see some men coming into their camp that assume it's the enemy, especially when it's pitch black. And this is why the Mennonites turned on each other and Gideon and his army didn't have to lift a sword. After this, we're told that the Mennonites fled, that Gideon called Israelites for some help, the men of Ephraim in particular, and their leaders, they came, sorry, and they killed the two leaders of Oreb and Zeb and beheaded them at a wine press and a rock. Which is really interesting, because we met Gideon at a wine press, and God reassured him at a rock. Great story. Great victory. But what does it teach us? Well, lesson number two, God is patient with us, but He desires faith from us. God is patient with us, but desires faith from us. Like, how incredible is the patience of God in this story? Like Pete talked about this last week, but you see it once again. Despite Gideon's request for affirmation, despite his weak, faltering faith, God is patient with him, even gives him another sign. You know, I reckon maybe that's what made Gideon just break down and worship God. Because like, this God is so patient with me. 
He keeps on helping me, even though I'm faltering and doubting His goodness and His plans. And church, can I reassure you and say to you as well that God is patient with you. And such patience should lead us to worship. That He's lovingly pursuing you and calling you to Himself. That even when you keep on letting Him down, you keep on faltering, that God loves you, forgives you, and is patient with you. Such patience to lead us to praising His name. And so church, if you doubt here today in particular, if you're someone who's like Gideon, you've got faltering faith, know that God is patient with you. And can I encourage you as well to, to ask questions and, and to know this, because everyone needs to know this, because for some reason we just keep forgetting about this. Every single one of us here is like Gideon. We all have questions that we don't know the answer to. We've all got doubts that we're wrestling with. We're all on a journey to grow to become more like Jesus. And so can I encourage you to ask questions of your brothers and sisters to pray for one another because in many ways we are like Gideon and we doubt and we need reassurance God is patient with us but then he also wants us to take a risk like like go back to this scene right like Gideon he has an army of 32,000 and then that becomes you know 10,000 and then it becomes 300 I don't know about you but I would have tapped out then I would have been like nah I'm out of here good luck with to you and the Midianites are about to attack him. And even though he gets this reassurance in this dream, it's still a big risk for him to go up against this army of 135,000 with torches and trumpets. This is a big step of faith. He takes a risk. You know what? That's how faith works. You know, God reveals himself to us and calls us to take a step of faith. And that's what we do. And so tonight, if you're someone who's he's not yet a Christian and you're someone who wants all your answers to the questions that you have, can, can I say to you, it's never come to a point where you know everything. But God asks you to take a step of faith, that He is a lamp to your feet, not a spotlight. Trust Him, take a risk. You know, we've all heard of how birds teach their young to fly. They push them out of the nest. Think of that from the perspective of the poor little bird. Mom, Dad, what are you doing? You crazy? The mom and dad knows that the bird is ready to fly. And so God is patient with us, but He desires faith from us. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. My wife and Emma and I, we've been married for um, eight years in January. And it, it, throughout those eight years, there's been two appliances that have, without a doubt, saved our marriage. Well, not that it was not going to be survival without it, but it's helped our marriage. Well, that's a better way to put it. And, and the two appliances are a dishwasher and a coffee machine, okay? So if you don't have a dishwasher, get one. If you don't have a coffee machine, well, that's up to you. But what happens in my relationship is every morning, Emma gets one of the boys and they come whisper up to, in my ear, say, mom needs a coffee. And then so I go make her a coffee and I give it to her and she's like, oh, Joel, you're awesome. All right. That's how our mornings go. But one morning, unfortunately, I went to go make a coffee and I got the milk out of the fridge and then I went to go pour the milk into the, you know, the throffer cup or the tin and I just saw that, you know, the chunks come out of the milk and then I'm like the splash and you know that moment when your gut's just like, oh, and you like the smell comes to you and you realize that this milk is off. I don't know about you, but I hate the smell and, and in particular the taste of off milk. It's not the greatest. You see, chapter 7 of Judges, can I be honest with you, that is, it is sweet, fresh milk, chapter 7. You know, it's, it's the story of Gideon. He's a hero. He's doing really well. But then all of a sudden you get to chapter 8 and things turn sour. Things turn sour. It's this heroic judge, unfortunately, becomes unfaithful. And so let's, let's have a look at chapter 8 and let's learn about the downfall of Gideon. 
Look, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, so let me try and summarize what happens here. So what goes on is after the battle occurs between the 300 men and 135,000, the Ephraimites, one of the biggest tribes in Israel, they come up to Gideon and they complain. And and even though they're able to kill two of the leaders, you know, at the wine press and the rock, they complain that they weren't part of the battle of the 300, you know, so they don't have any glory. And so Gideon responds diplomatically, but then after that, he tries to chase down the two Midianite kings. But before he does that, him and his 300 troops are really hungry, and so they go to these two towns in Israel and they ask for some bread, right? Simple requests. But these two towns refuse. Why? Well, because they're scared of the Midianites and the army that remains. You see, there's still 15,000 soldiers on the loose, and so they're scared and they refuse to give bread to Gideon and his troops. Lesson number three, God's people will disappoint you. God's people will disappoint you. Look, you've got a feel for Gideon here, right? He's just witnessed one of the greatest victories in history. And instead of, the Ephra, 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 sorry, instead of the men of Ephraim coming to him and saying, how amazing is our God? Like, let's have a prayer and praise night. Let's get Travis on guitar singing. You know, let's have a celebration spot. Let's interview Gideon about how incredible his faith is. What do they do? They come and complain that they didn't get any of the glory. And that's exactly why God didn't want them in the battle in the first place. Or, or what about the two towns of Sukkoth and Peniel? Like, how angry would you be if you're Gideon? Like, wouldn't you be like, didn't you just witness the battle that just occurred? Didn't you just witness how my 300 men were able to defeat 120,000? Don't you know who I am? I'm Gideon. How angry would you be at their lack of faith, their lack of generosity, their passivity? See, this story points out a simple truth. God's people will disappoint you. And look, my guess is that most of us here know this. We've learned this lesson before. We have some scars, some battle wounds that were inflicted by a brother or sister in the past. And yet for some reason, when this keeps on happening to us, it's like we forget this lesson. And we get shocked by the sinfulness of our brothers and sisters. We end up whinging and complaining like Gideon or getting overheated like Gideon. Instead of responding with patience, kindness, forgiveness, and grace. And so church, can I, can I say this to you as well as to my own heart? Let's not place unrealistic expectations on people that they can't carry. We're all growing here. We all have said things that we wish we didn't say. We've all done things that we wish we didn't do. We, we've all failed to do things that we wish we did do. This story reminds us that God's people will disappoint you. And we ought to show grace. If that depresses you, let me depress you a little bit more. Lesson number four, God's leaders will disappoint you as well. God's leaders will disappoint you as well. You see, after Gideon promises to punish these two towns, his army continues to pursue the two kings. And once he captures them, we learn some new information. And what we learn is that the reason why Gideon is hunting down these two kings is because these kings had killed some of Gideon's brothers. You see, what we learn is that Gideon's, I guess, passion for, for the, killing these two kings is born out of personal vengeance and not the glory of God. And so Gideon asks his son to kill these two kings. Why? Because he wants to humiliate them. And after his boy refuses to do it, Gideon executes them, and then he returns back to those two towns and he punishes them for the lack of generosity. Church, God's leaders are going to disappoint you. Heck, I'm going to disappoint you. Maybe I've disappointed you of this sermon. In this chapter, Gideon doesn't pray. Matter of fact, God's not even mentioned. Instead, Gideon goes on a power trip and violently executes these kings, not for God's glory, but for his own glory. 
And get this, instead of showing patience and kindness like God did to him, he shows absolutely no patience, no kindness to these two towns. 500 years ago, on October the 31st, 1517, uh, theologian Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis or complaints to a Catholic church that kicked off the Protestant Reformation. At a time where the Catholic church was wickedly corrupt, where people were paying indulgences so that they would get into heaven and pay off um, the Vatican, the gospel was ignored, church tradition was seen to be more important than the Bible's teachings, and so Luther started a movement, a Reformation to see churches rediscover the teachings of the Bible and the good news of the gospel of grace. By his critics, Martin Luther was called many things. Let me give you a list of some of them. He was called a blasphemer, an agent of Satan, a non-violator, and my favorite, a demon-possessed, sex-crazed monk with a furious temper. And yet, by people who actually really knew who he was, He was actually called one of the most influential figures in the history of Christianity and the world. Our church here today is shaped by Martin Luther and the Reformation that he kicked off. How we do church, the fact that we have the Bible in our own language is thanks to Martin Luther and to his faithfulness and the great Christian leader he was. It's been 500 years since the Reformation. We should celebrate that. Thank God for how his spirit works through Martin Luther and others. And yet, can I tell you that Martin Luther was a broken man? Unfortunately, towards the end of his life, he wrote some anti-Semitic material. In other words, he cursed Jews and said some terrible things about them. To give you a sample, he said that Jews should pray and kiss the devil's excrement. excrement, God's leaders will disappoint you. In my own life, I have seen youth leaders who led me to Christ, grew me in maturity, wander away from the faith. I've seen pastors and preachers and authors who have taught me so much be disqualified from ministry or at least for a season. And church, look, I have no intentions of letting you down. And please pray for me, the pastors, the elders, the other leaders here, because we need it. But I need you to know this, that I am just as sinful as you. That my heart is just as prone to wander from the God I love as yours that I have a sinful flesh that wants to rebel against my king. That like you, I need to learn from Gideon's mistakes. Lesson four, God's leaders will disappoint. And the reason why they'll disappoint is because of lesson five, which is because we all want to be treated like a king. We all want to be treated like a king. Verse 22 says this in chapter 8, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, listen to this line, it's a great line, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a line. What a man. Like, if you posted that on Facebook, man, you'd get a lot of likes. Like, he's, he's, what a job. Like, maybe he's, you know, he's reforming his old age. He's not as violent. He's, he's learned his lessons. You know, it's about God and God's glory alone. But, well, wait, wait a minute. Let's just jump down to verse 30. Now, Gideon had 70 sons of his own. We don't know how many daughters. I'm guessing a lot as well. For he had many wives. Now, that's a bit shocking because, you know, in that day to have a harem like that and 70 sons is pretty king-like. But Gideon's not a king. Verse 31, his concubine, probably one of many, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. 
Get this, in Hebrew, the word Abilamech literally means, my father is king. My father is king. Kind of an odd name to name your kid, if you don't think you're a king, yeah? See, it kind of seems like Gideon sees himself as a king, or at the very least wants the rewards of a king, which actually explains to us the rest of what occurs in chapter 8. You see, after Gideon's great one-liner, he actually asks for some plunder. He asks for all the gold earrings from all the dead Amalekites, and he gathers them up at like a tax, just like a king would, and he creates this e-pod, uh, which is basically becomes an idol. And this e-pod, if you're wondering, what is that? Well, uh, the, the priest used to wear an e-pod before they'd go into the temple or the tabernacle to make requests before God and ask for God's direction. So what he's doing here is he's not only creating an idol, but he's also trying to put himself in the place of God and saying, hey, people, you come to me for direction now, just like vassals would go to direction before a king. If we're honest, deep down, we're all like Gideon. We all want to be treated like a king. We all want the rewards of a king. The glory, the riches, the pleasures, the fame, the attention, the recognition. Ever since Adam and Eve ate that from that forbidden fruit, humanity has been wrestling with God for his throne. You and I can be exactly like Gideon. We can give lip service to God and say, Jesus is king. And live a life that tells a completely different story. And so church, can I ask you, where in your life do you say Jesus is king, but in reality he's actually not? You're giving him lip service. And you don't tend to follow him or please him at all. What I find um, devastating about the story of Gideon, especially after last week, and Pete did such a great job, is last week we saw how he showed bravery. He knocked down his father's idols, how there was reformation in the home. Like, I, I loved seeing Gideon and what he did there. But then in chapter 8, what we learn is that he doesn't learn from his father's mistakes. He ends up creating his own idol that leads his family in Israel astray. I find this devastating because the reality is, is that you and I can follow in the footsteps of Gideon and not learn from his mistakes. And so look at... When you read Judges chapter 7, the question you should be thinking is, how's God going to deliver His people through Gideon and this weak army? But then when you get to Judges chapter 8, and you just had this big climax, this big victory, and you hope that there's a full stop, and it's the end of Gideon's life, but it's not, and then there's this downward trajectory of Gideon's failure, the question that should be going through your head is, like, who's going to bring ultimate peace? Who's going to be the leader that is the ultimate judge that ultimately saves us? How can God actually save His people if the saviors themselves are just as broken? And church, we know the answer to that question, don't we? We know who is the perfect Savior. We know that Jesus came. We know that Jesus, unlike Gideon, had no sin. That Jesus, unlike Gideon, had every right to be treated like a king, but didn't. Jesus, who, unlike Gideon, was actually the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple, so that you and I could worship God. The Son of God, who, unlike Gideon, didn't allow success to go to his head, but remained faithful at point death at the cross. Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who has ransomed us from our self-honoring reactions to success and our self-hating responses to failure. Our King who went to the cross to die for our rebellion, our idolatry and our hatred towards other people. 
At the cross, Jesus performed a much greater miracle than what Gideon did by defeating Satan's sin and death, and not with a torch or a trumpet, but with his broken body at the cross, by taking the wrath of God for all sin, past, present, future. Church, be be impressed by Gideon for a little bit, but ultimately be impressed by your Savior. But there are two things that you and I can never do, probably a lot more, but there's definitely two things that you and I can never do. The two things are this, we can't overcome our sin and we can't overcome death. We can't. We can't release ourselves from the curse of sin or deliver ourselves from the power of death and yet Jesus did both of these things on our behalf. And so look, when when you're feeling weak and unusable before God and thinking God can never use me and my circumstances, look to Gideon, yes, but ultimately look to the cross. When people disappoint you, when God's leaders disappoint you, Remember how Christ doesn't disappoint you. Remember how he went to the cross so that we may be forgiven and forgive others. And church, when you are jealous for kingly rewards, for the pleasures, for the glory, for the fame, remember the greatest gift that has been given to you, Christ himself. Church, may we, may we not repeat Gideon's mistakes, but may we learn from them. May we learn that God will often weaken us to use us. And so if you're going through a season of trial, know that God is trying to teach you through it. That God is patient with us, but desires faith from us. That God's people will disappoint us. That God's leaders will disappoint us. And that we all desire to be treated like a king. And that ultimately, Jesus is that king. And so with the cross as motivation, with the Holy Spirit as our power, we can learn from Gideon. We can break the cycles of sin and we can become heroes of the faith like Gideon, but only if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this story because what it points out to us is that no one is perfect but Jesus. It teaches us so clearly, Lord, that you want us not to boast in our strengths, but instead to boast in your strengths. You want us, Lord, to come before you and ask for your help and do what you want us to do. And so, Lord, help us, remind us that we can be like Gideon, that we can make the mistakes of our fathers. But help us not to do that. Help us instead, Lord, to fix our eyes on Christ and by the power of your Spirit to become more like Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to spend some time singing because Christ is our King and He deserves our praises.